Our Father, we are blessed indeed to have you as our guide, our all in all, that you have brought us thus far in our lives, given us opportunity to uh, be a witness to you, uh, that you teach us in your word that we would have the depth of information to follow your laws and statutes, that we would know who we are in Christ, and it's because of his grand and miraculous sacrifice for us that we can be included in your kingdom. So go with us this day as we move into this last part of Romans chapter 6, that we would be encouraged that we be strengthened in the word, in Christ's name, amen. Well, we've been looking at the fact that we ought to consider ourselves dead to sin because we have been crucified with Christ. And Paul brings that to a conclusion uh, in the passage before us in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Well, how, how is it possible that sin could make us obey its passions? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, this is a matter of two worlds, not only in a spiritual but in a redemptive historical sense. The old stands for the unredeemed in its distress and sin, and the new for the time of salvation, the recreated, uh, recreation that dawned with Christ's resurrection. He who is in Christ is a new creature, participating in and belonging to this new world of God. So we reckon ourselves dead to sin in his crucifixion and should not allow ourselves to be under the dominion of sin. The conclusion is that we're called to guard against allowing sin to rule the moment, the minute, the hours of our lives. Here's a metaphor to help us. Vigilance, like a soldier on guard duty in hostile enemy territory, when something or someone detracts us from the necessary watchfulness of our thoughts, words, and deeds, we may react contrary to our Christian profession. Our tongue can function like a flamethrower, and our looks can kill. Both are weapons produced by a non-vigilant, sinful heart. When we do allow sin to define the moment, quickly acknowledge the failure and repent immediately. You can turn in your Bible, if you like, to James 1, verse 19. But for the sake of time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this. <clears throat> now, we're all reasonable people here, albeit sinful habits in every one of us. So let's consider what James has recorded for us in verses 19 through 27. Know this, my brothers, beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. 
For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the window. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the man who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now Paul has established in Romans our natural condition of original sin. By way of review, original sin is described in two basic metaphors in the New Testament. The first is a metaphor of death. By nature, we're spiritually dead in our spirits. In our natural born condition, we have no life with respect to the things of God. No vitality whatsoever. The second metaphor is the one Paul is developing here in Romans 6. The metaphor of slavery and bondage. We are by nature in bondage to sin. And we need to be careful when we read the New Testament to read it with our virgin ears. We don't want to bring to the text all the baggage of the culture around us. One of the most destructive ideas in our culture today is the notion of free will. That the human will is basically in a state of indifference. That God grants salvation. But a person has a choice to freely accept it or reject it. This idea is pervasive in our culture and it's unbiblical. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and by hearing in the word of God. So also, it also says that faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. With regard to salvation, the word believe always implies more than mental agreement with scriptural truth. And we see that in John 6, 44 and 65 and chapter 14, verse 6 and 1 Peter 1, 3. All these verses indicate basically the same truth, and I'll paraphrase them collectively as follows. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent, <clears throat> unless the Father who sent Jesus draws him. Human beings are free in a sense that we have the power of volition. By nature, we have the capacity to make choices according to our desires. The human heart in its natural condition is evil. It's treacherous and deceitful. And Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us as such. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, the fall of man has affected humanity at the deepest level. Our mind, emotions, desires have all been tainted by sin. And we're blind to just how severe the problem is. 
By nature, we have no inclination toward the things of God. This was the essence of Luther's most popular work as he responded to the diatribe of Erasmus of Rotterdam with a book entitled The Bondage of the Will. It's a Christian classic and one that the Dead Theologian Society reviewed in the past year or so. So we, we must not think that the natural state, we have, in, we have the moral power to incline ourselves to the things of God. Jesus made this clear to Nicodemus. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's John 3, 3. Let alone take steps to enter it. Prior to rebirth by the Holy Spirit, we are in prison to our sinful impulses. The Bible isn't the only place we can learn that. We can know that just by looking at the world around us and even in our own heart. Which brings us to 6.13. What is that? Is it, that's not 613. It is? Okay. Okay, Romans 613. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. That's not where I want it to be. Was it? Okay. I need to be at 13 though. I got to get a bigger phone here. <laughs> this, this, this two and a half inch screen is not getting it for these old eyes. Okay, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Well, I've highlighted the first two words in this verse do not. And this do not warning in the same context as here in 613 occurs 17 times in Romans, stressing sinful practices believers must not do. I could tell you what those are, but I won't unless you come up afterward and ask me. There are two corollary verses, uh, Romans 7, 9, and Colossians 3, 5 that describe the why in, in very general terms, the description of unrighteousness. And if you recall, Colossians is very specific about certain sins, so I will leave that to your uh, reading that that's on the screen. The second part of this verse that I've highlighted is, but present. Now,
This means that righteous conduct honors God as creator. It acknowledges his power and trusts him to do what he promised. The contrast, God's wrath on unrighteousness, is found in Romans 1, 18 through 32. And that was covered early in our series here in Romans and it's suffice just to mention its location. However, Paul, Paul reasonable, reasonable plea in verse 13 is referenced in the three verses on the screen now. Romans 12, 1, 1 Peter 2, 24, and 4, verse 2, where Paul appeals uh, to us uh, to live our lives in an appropriate way. So Paul is obviously addressing believers, those raised from spiritual death and set free from bondage and slavery to sin. This is our condition now. And when we sin, even though the freedom we have from sin and bondage is real and the power of the Holy Spirit is there, yet we still struggle. And we'll experience this conflict until the day that we die. In fact, Paul speaks in other places about the intense warfare that continues between the old man, which is completely flesh, and the new man, which is now uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit in dwelling in him to enable him to move forward in the things of God. As Christians, we still sin, but we don't have to. Every time we're presented with a temptation, God gives us a way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We are not slaves to sin. We can only volunteer. God promises us the present power of the Holy Spirit if we will simply cooperate the work of the Christian life is synergistic, not monergistic. Our regeneration, our birth, was the work of one person, God alone. It wasn't a joint effort. However, the moment we took our first breath of regenerated spiritual life, at that point, it became a joint effort. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. God is working, and we have to work. Now, Paul is speaking here to free people, to those whom God has regenerated. But still, we're tempted, and we have weaknesses. We bring a lot of baggage into the Christian life, sinful patterns of behavior, and they don't disappear overnight. What disappears is the bondage. Now we have the responsibility to cooperate with the grace God's made available to us and we're to make diligent use of the ordinary means of grace and to make sure to feed our spirit continually if possible but at least as often as we enjoy a good meal but be ever vigilant to test those desires as to whether they will pass examination by the Holy Spirit dwelling within after all everything we do is done in the full light and presence of the Holy Spirit uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism 88 uh, covers the mean of, means of grace. 
I'm just now getting to 614. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin is highlighted here. Most of us are careful what we volunteer for, because we're responsible people. However, we frequently volunteer to sin without so much as a thought of our Christian responsibility. Recall that we are not slaves to sin. We can only volunteer. Romans 8, 2, and 12 are on the screen to reinforce this. 8, 2 is, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Followed by 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, in to live according to the flesh. Then I've highlighted no dominion. The corollary there is Romans 6.12, and that's where we started, so I won't go back and review that at this point. Well, Romans 6.14 describes our state of affairs now. Sin's dominion is gone. We can't return in absolute bondage to sin as we once were. No longer under the law in a sense of being underneath its awesome weighty burden. No longer oppressed by its guilt and judgment. We're now under grace. Ephesians 2.8 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is a truth that Paul continually reminds Christians. In my study for this class, I, I peruse Herman Ritterboss. Uh, published studies entitled Paul, an outline of his theology. And I found this on page 265, and he did not call it a Christian manifesto. That is my term for it. And by the way, this uh, PowerPoint presentation is online. Uh, you can access it later and print it if you like. But to get this on audio, I'm just going to read what Mr. Ritterboss has put down here. As sin is a totalitarian regime that claims the whole man for itself, Romans 6, 12, 13, and 7, 14, so the new man must place his body, himself, and all his members, all his actions and potentialities at the disposal of God as having come to life from the dead. Romans 6, 11, and 13. The Christian is to be obedient to God with all his heart, Romans 6, 17, and with a renewed mind to ask, what is pleasing to God, Romans 12, 2. The willing as well as the doing, the body as well as the soul, are involved in God's gift and likewise in his demand, Philippians 2, 13, 2 Corinthians 8, uh, 10 through 24 and 1 Thessalonians 5:23, And as God has made those who are in Christ rich in all things, 1 Corinthians 1, 5 and 2 Corinthians 9, 11, so God will be served by them in all things. All things ought to take place to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Colossians 3, 17 and Philippians 2, 14. In all things, believers are to be obedient. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, all things should be done in love. 
1 Corinthians 6.14. Filled with all wisdom and spiritual knowledge, believers must walk worthy of God to please Him in all things, bearing fruit in every good work, strengthened with all power unto the patience and long-suffering, Colossians 1, 9 through 11. This Pauline rhetoric is full of words, the words every and all. In the way that Paul continually styles this doctrine, in a sense, it seems totalitarian and uncompromising. It appears difficult to reproduce and is forged in a highly distinctive manner. However much the apostle may speak in positive indicatives of being set free from the power of sin and death, this does not mean that believers have, in fact, left sin behind as ground already conquered. Paul describes the life of a believer time and time again from the double viewpoint of battling on the basis of victory and of gaining the victory on the basis of the battle. So now I have it on audio. So we move from grace to grace, from faith to faith, and grace doesn't end with our justification. Grace is ever-present in the process of our sanctification. We are as much reconciled and sanctified by grace as we are justified by grace. Several years ago, the youth in our church enjoyed a progressive dinner in the various homes of all the elders. And during once uh, such culinary stop at, at our home, I presented a brief bio and my testimony, followed by a Q&A time, allowing these young people to ask questions and make comments about their personal spiritual journey. And afterward, uh, as this large group was leaving, one of the youth casually mentioned that they had occasional doubts that they were really saved. Whether in personal thoughts or responding to a weaker brother, some here today may recall such an encounter, either with someone else or with themselves. When Satan comes at you and says, well, if you're a Christian, why do you keep failing? Well, I won't take the time to go there now, but uh, the Westminster Confession chapter 18.4, Assurance of Grace and Salvation, deals with this very issue, uh, as does the larger catechism 81 and the shorter catechism 29 through 39. So I invite you to explore these as you have opportunity. We must get justification in, of faith by faith in our bloodstream every day. We need to continually return to the ground of our justification, which is God's righteousness alone by His grace alone. The law slays us. It's a mirror of our sin, so it drives us to the cross. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans 6.14. We're not under the law. We're under grace. Then Paul comes at us with another rhetorical question here in verses 15 and 16. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present your, yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are a slave to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which is, leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to rightness, righteousness? Now here Paul is formulating the discussion in terms of the law of grace. Believers are called to use their freedom to bring righteousness since sin can only result in death. 
I've highlighted uh, the words A, R, we in the opening words of verse 15, which refers, a, refers us to Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Uh, again, we covered this very early in this series. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Well, this pronouncement is directed toward stimulating a believer's responsibility to continuously forge our actions, thoughts, and behaviors that we become commensurate with the new spirituality that is ours and that we confess. Uh, Present yourselves is always also highlighted in verse 16. The corollary uh, to that is John 8, 34. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Church, we don't need to practice sin. We were overqualified at our birth. Our desperate need is to practice righteousness. So to fully grasp what Paul means here, we need to understand something about the indentured, uh, indentured servitude. When we think about slaves, we typically think about the slave trade in the Western Hemisphere in recent centuries, man-stealing. However, in the ancient world, slavery was primarily a voluntary servitude. When someone had a debt he couldn't pay, he would offer his services to fulfill that debt. That's the context in which Paul poses this question here in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are a slave to the one whom you obey? He is saying, if we obey sin as a slave, the only outcome is death. But if we present our bodies as slaves to obedience, the end is righteousness. So that brings us to slaves of righteousness in verse 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Standard of teaching is highlighted there in... uh, tail end of 17 I believe it's referencing 2 Timothy 1 verse 12 through 14 but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard, in the verse I just read, guard the good deposit, is diligently watching and taking appropriate actions as we are confronted with the circumstance of our life because our 
of our having received by faith reunion union with Christ. Slaves of righteousness. Um, has its corollary with Romans 6.22, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself here with this one, uh, so I'm not going to read that verse. At this point, uh, we'll come to it uh, shortly. We know that we can't be saved by our righteousness, so we must not think that righteousness has any part of the, our quest for sanctification. Never mind that Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The primary business of the Christian life is a quest for righteousness. And Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because of the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, the people thought that they could earn their way to heaven by their efforts or by their heritage through Abraham. The Pharisees taught that the way to God was by obeying the law. The Pharisees gradually changed Judaism from a religion of sacrifice to one of keeping the commandments and the many addendums that they employed, turning the people to legalism. The Pharisees promoted works over sacrifice and recall that animal sacrifice continued in the temple until 70 AD when the Romans destroyed it. Well, while the Pharisees were sound in their professions and creeds, their system of religion was more about outward form than genuine faith. Even so, the scribes and the Pharisees beat us on some points. The Pharisees had all of what we call the Old Testament as their authoritative word of God. And they also held many beliefs that both Christians and Jews hold today. The belief that God is active in history, that angels and demons exist, and that there will be a bodily resurrection from the dead, and that there is an afterlife. And they did what we would call missionary work. And they actively tried to bring people to God. The Pharisees, however, added extra laws. They were called oral laws to the law of Moses, which is legalism, leading the people into slavery. Now I'm about to make a fine line here and make a nuanced point, so make sure you're tracking with me. The Pharisees had good intentions with what they did but they took it to a sinful place. Let me explain. You see, the Pharisees tried to make the law of Moses very applicable to the lives of people. That's what they were doing when they were interpreting, explaining what the law meant. The problem arose when their interpretations, explanations, and applications became equal to Scripture itself. And this form of self-righteousness continues even today. Well, continuing on to verse 19 and 20, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once were presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, 
So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, is highlighted there. In verse 19, and its corollary is bumps us back to verse 16, and we've already been there today, uh, so I won't press that again. Uh, in 19, verse 19b, slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification, sanctification. Uh, the corollary there is 1 Corinthians 9, 27. But I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. This is an important phrase here. I discipline my body. As I said earlier, discipline is a believer's responsibility to continually forge actual thought and behavior, that it becomes commensurate with our new spiritual reality that is ours and that we confess. I've also highlighted verse 4 here in verse 20. Its corollary is verse 16. Also, we've covered that earlier. But just to add to that, our behavior is continually being evaluated by friend and foe. We must guard with all diligence our true identity that we may effectively illuminate the gospel to which we've been obedient, which we must be obedient. We had no righteousness when we were under slavery to the dominion of sin. We were completely free from righteousness. Our physical bodies are a collection of instruments that bring about our desires. Paul says we are to offer ourselves to God as resurrected people. Our mind, voices, ears, eyes, and feet are to be used as a toolkit offering to our, of our whole person to God. What does Romans 12:1 tell us? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says the whole person has been raised spirit, from spiritual death and is called to a new kind of slavery. He continues this metaphor of slavery when he calls us to be slaves to righteousness, not slaves to Satan, but servants of God. Now in 6.21 and 22, what fruit were you getting at the time from the things with which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. Uh, first part of 21 there is highlighted what fruit. Well, the pleasure and profit of sin doesn't deserve to be called fruit. Sinners are plowing iniquity, sowing vanity, and reaping the same. Shame came into the world with sin, and it's still the certain effect of it. The end of sin is death, though the way sin may be pleasant and inviting, the end of it will be bitterness. The second reference under what fruit is found in Jeremiah 12, verse 13. What they sow, when they, they have sown wheat and have reaped thorns, they have tired themselves out, but they profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. 
from this kind of condemnation, the believer is set at liberty, being released from the bondage of sin. Highlighted in uh, verse 22 there is how become slaves to God. Its corollary is 1 Corinthians 7, 22. For he who has called who was called in the Lord as a bondservant, as a freeman, freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a bondservant of Christ. Well, in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 tells us that each person is to lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. First uh, Peter 2, 14 covers in a in a larger section in verses 13 through 25 covers submission to all established authority we are to model the grace of God in all of life which is the second part of our motto here at Christ's covenant and then freedom from sin means freedom for righteousness freedom for eternal life if if our fruit is unto holiness and if there is any active principle of truth and growing grace, the end will be everlasting life. Though the way is always up, uphill, the path is narrow, it's thorny, it's threatening. Yet salvation, the everlasting life is at the end of it for sure. The gift of God is eternal life. And the gift is through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is sure. Christ purchased it prepared it, prepares us for it, perseveres us in it. Christ is the all in all in our wisdom in our salvation. Pardon me. The apostle closes this chapter with the well-known verse, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is in sharp contrast to the sin, to the news, to the bad news. Uh, is this good news? The gift of God, the true gift of God, the wages of sin is something that we merit, and the gift of God, on the other hand, is free. It's gratuitous. All through this section, Paul has used contrast, slavery to sin versus slavery to righteousness, wages of sin versus the gift of eternal life. We believers have now experienced God's grace. So I want to share with you uh, something that I got from Paul Tripp. I don't know about you, but in the rush and press of life, I can lose my mind. I'm not referring to the, I'm referring to a subtle form of insanity that often inflicts me and perhaps a vast number of my brothers, Christian brothers and sisters. There are moments in my life when I lose my gospel mind. There are moments when I live as if God didn't exist. The Bible was never written. Jesus never lived, died, and rose again. I'm not referring to intentionally walking away from the faith, but rather it's a, a defor deformation of the gospel that I know. So why do I call it deformative? Because in these moments, my life can no longer be formed by the vibrant rest 
and I surrender to my Lord, but rather is deformed by other things in and around me. There are times when I lose sight of what is truly important and valuable in life. And when I do, it alters what I desire, how I think, what I say, and the things I do. I put up here the list that Paul Tripp provided, suggesting that we may have lost our gospel mind. If during an argument with a spouse, close friend, or casual acquaintance, and we have an incessant demand to gain affirmation as to your being right for once becomes an overarching goal in this discussion. Doing whatever is necessary to get that job or promotion or perhaps uh, something similar to that. A willingness to destroy a relationship with your neighbor over a boundary dispute. An inflamed rant into your teenager because you're overwhelmed with dread of the continued disrespectful drift which is against what you've expected them to do. Clinging to an unending obsession with your weight and appearance. And there are several more there. And I'm sure we could all probably make up our own little things that would be comparable to this. So all of these and more indications that we have indeed lost our gospel mind. And as you know, the radical life-changing and hope-changing values of the gospel aren't reinforced anywhere in our culture today. We all need to live in uh, a constant need of fundamental gospel value clarification. We all need to be reminded again and again of what is truly valuable and what should truly form uh, be formative in our life. So I'm, I'm sure you're aware that there's never been a more difficult time to keep the worldly, materialistic, and self-centered values of the culture around us at bay. It's, it's harder than ever to quiet the cacophony of voices. And think with gospel clarity about what is truly important. It's hard because we carry in our pockets or our purses this single piece of powerful technology. It's virtually impossible to overstate the influence of technology that it puts on us and the potential to form bad habits, bad habits resulting in our forgetting what is truly valuable in life. So with, with, as with truth, as it is true with truth, with uh, every other spiritual danger in our lives, God in his grace meets us at every point of need with just what we're lacking. One of the primary ways our loving Savior meets us when we struggle against losing our gospel mind is the gift of the church. He knows that we're spiritually hardwired to do it, try to do it ourselves, our own way. So he's ordained the church to regularly gather, that we would remember once again, that we would grieve with each other, that we would celebrate with each other, and for living out the beautiful values in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These regular gatherings of God's people are not first an obligation, they're a gift. They're not first a duty, they are a welcome refueling. They are the Father pulling up us into his lap and whispering in our ear that he loves us and then putting us down and letting us go on our way. So the 
regular gathering of the church. There are five things up here uh, that the church is designed to lovingly confront us with the fact that we must, the most valuable things in life can't be earned. They can't be humanly achieved. They can't be purchased or, covered or owned. Uh, it's not something we will get from the people in our life outside of church. It's not in the life experience that we hope to have sometime in the future. The most valuable thing in life is the eternal gift of divine grace and by our union with Christ it's eternal forgiveness, our eternal acceptance into the family of God and the guaranteed destiny that is ours as a child of God all secured for us by the righteous life, substitutionary death and life-giving resurrection of Jesus. By grace Christ is in us and we're in Christ. The union means that we don't have to live fearfully and powerlessly in the present. And we don't have to be crippled by anxiety over what may happen in the future. Gospel values allow us to live at the intersection of humility and hope. It allows us to live with a radical honesty about our weaknesses while living with the courage as well. They lead us to live life for the glory greater than our own and to be generous as God has been generous to us. To forgive those who have been forgiven as we have been forgiven. And to pursue the kinds of success in life that everybody else does. Job, relationship, finances, physical health, entertainment, and leisure. Rather than these domains of our life taking on new meaning and purpose because they aren't. Uh, there aren't places where we look for life, but rather become places where we joyfully live out the life that we've been given by redeeming grace. Corporate worship is God's weekly gift to us, wrapped in the grace of Jesus and given by the one who created us, knows us, understands our temptations that greet us in this broken world that we live in and offer to help us as we need. Thankfully and humbly, we receive God's grace of the gathered church with joy. Now closing with Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day dawning. I will stop there. And if we have points of discussion or what have you, now would be a good a good time to let those go. Yes, Dave. So is this <coughs> Paul is, is the great preacher as far as his repetitive and concepts there. I mean he repeats it within this Romans six and then he repeats it in all his letters. He does.
Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, it, we can't wait until we're completely free of sin to start taking on new uh, appropriate ways to live our lives. We have to start where we are. And new Christians, when they come to the faith, uh, they're bringing a lot of things into that. And it takes a lifetime to, if you diligently work through those things, to try to offload all that baggage that is sinful. And it's like uh, taking off the backpack that's loaded with sin. We recall from Pilgrim's Progress, uh, it, it takes a while to get rid of that. And uh, diligent awareness of where we are in our, in our skin as we walk around is important. Just be aware. Uh, we're not going to get it right, uh, but hopefully we'll begin to recognize more and more hey, that what I just said or what I just did or the look that I gave there, that really wasn't right. I need to repent from that. So that's kind of the life of a Christian. Yes, Steve. Well, the, we are a new creation, empowered by the Holy Spirit, indwelling us. And you can think of it as your conscience. Once you have heard the truth and decided that that thing I've been holding on to in my conscience is not right, so I'm going to replace it with this. Okay, then that becomes a, a new feature in your life. Uh, you've, you've begun to regenerate your pattern of life because you are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to, to open your mind up to begin to absorb these truths, these gospel truths, so it is, yes, it is the power of the Holy Spirit working in us that ultimately provides our ability to do it. We also have a responsibility to make the effort and to make sure that we try to repeat that, what we have learned again and again and again. 
which adds to our becoming more Christ-like. Uh, couldn't it be said, the Holy Spirit, he's the paraclete, the one that calls you over, puts his arm about you, and walks with you. And that scripture that you noted earlier, you don't yield your body's members to unrighteous, unrighteousness or sin, but yield to righteousness. And just like you said, replacement. I mean, you say, all right, everybody, don't think about an element. Elephant. Well, you know what's going to happen. On the other hand, we read the word of God. These things come into our life. It shines light on us. We see ourselves in this mirror that really tells the truth. And then gradually, bit by bit, the Holy Spirit puts his arm about us, walks with us, convicts us of these things day by day. And gradually, we, I don't know, two steps forward, one step back, gradually things change. Well, anyway, that's the way it's been with me. I'm sure that a lot of people could say amen to that. Yes. microphone in thinking what Steve is asking in Romans 8 and he said it would be further on and I just think this is such a wonderful scripture in Romans 8 11 of the promise and the help that we have because if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you that's a great promise of the yeah. help that we have with the Spirit. It, it definitely is. There. Uh, there's also the sense, and with Steve's question, with Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And, and if I understood this correctly, Steve, you were talking about um, obeying God's word, doing what he says, um, and... God's role in that, in God works within us, in our hearts, through the Holy Spirit, and then we are, in turn, are to work out what he works in. Yes, indeed. Patrick over here. Uh, made me think of, in, in line with um, Piper, uh, that Colossians 1 at the very end in verse 29 says, for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
And uh, I mean, I think that's, that's just it right there, that it's God that gives us the capacity. He pours into us that we might work out. Yeah, with on our own, we still have uh, residual tendencies to want to say our peace of mind and the gift that we've been given gives us the power to not do that. We don't have to sin, but we can volunteer. I've got to go do another duty, so I'm going to have to leave, but please stay around and uh, discuss any of this among yourselves or just have communion with each other. Thank you for your attention. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. It is the guide to our lives that you've empowered us with the Holy Spirit to live our lives in a way that would be pleasing and honoring to you in all that we do and say. Bless us this day as we continue into our worship hour and we are delighted, absolutely delighted, that you have provided for us the means by which we may bypass the wrath of God because of the work that Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has done for us, work that we couldn't do, paid a debt that we couldn't pay, to give us this grand and glorious gift. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.